You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the Parsha Review Podcast. It is so awesome to be here with everyone. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shoftim. It's the fifth portion in the book of Deuteronomy and the 48th portion since the beginning of the Torah. There are 97 verses, 1,523 words, and 5,590 letters. There are 41 mitzvahs in this week's parsha. 41 mitzvahs, 14 performative mitzvot aseh, and 27 prohibitions mitzvot lota aseh. We have seven or eight different topics that are discussed in this week's parsha, and it begins with justice. We're commanded to appoint judges and officers in all cities to objectively apply the laws properly. Pursue righteousness. Judge righteously. Don't show favor or accept any bribe. Bribes are blinding. Stay away from idolatry. Don't plant trees near the altar. And don't erect statues or pillars. An animal with a blemish should not be brought as an offering to Hashem. An idolater should be put to death after thorough verification as idol worship represents the greatest perversion of Hashem's divine will. Crimes are adjudicated in Jewish court only with verified testimony from two or more witnesses. The Sanhedrin, the high court, is given the power to make binding decisions and rulings based on the principles of the Torah's divine intent. All are obligated to obey their rulings, the rulings of the Sanhedrin, as they carry the same weight as biblical commands and are considered godly directives. This is a verse in the Torah where man is given the authority, man meaning the sages of the Sanhedrin, of the high court, are given the power to institute laws into the Torah, which is very dangerous who has the right to change the Torah. You don't have a right to change the Torah. They can add, only the sages can, based on certain principles. You can't just say, well, I decided that because in the time of Moses, there wasn't an elevator, so I can ride an elevator on Shabbos because I changed the rules. No, 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 no. It comes based on a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amount of knowledge of the entire Torah. Not only the Chumash, not only the Mishnah, not only the Talmud, not only the Midrash, not only the Kabbalah, not only all of halacha, knowing all the fundamentals of the Torah and abiding and living by all of them and being selected as a member of the Sanhedrin and then having a unanimous decision by the Sanhedrin. The Rambam goes into this. The Rambam discusses this in great details. But I don't want you to think just by listening here for three minutes into the class, like, oh, okay, so that means I can change things. No. Okay. Next major topic in this week's Parsha is a Jewish king. A Jewish king should not have too many horses or too many wives, too much gold or silver, and this is so that they not go astray with haughtiness. Look at me with my palaces, with my wives, with my horses, with my gold and silver. Look at me, I'm so great. And No, be very careful. The king must have an unyielding commitment to Hashem, to the Torah, and to the Jewish people. The king should write two Torah scrolls, one to carry with him at all times, and the other Torah stored safely to remind and keep him from becoming haughty over his brethren, and he must study Torah regularly. 
Next, the Torah shifts to the Levites. Moshe re-emphasizes that the tribe of Levi, which means the Kohanim and the Levim, the priests and the Levites, will not inherit the land, but they will inherit the spirit of Hashem. And the Jewish people are commanded to support the Kohanim and the Levim. They are the educators, they are the teachers, they are the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, and therefore it is our obligation, the non-Levites, the non-Kohanim, to support them. And the Torah goes into great detail of what part of our offerings and our sacrifices would go to the Kohanim and the Levim, what parts of our vineyards and our produce would go to the Levim and the tribe of Levi. I'm combining them both as the Kohanim and the Levim. Purity. Do not be like the nations of the world who resort to all forms of divination and sorcery. Be pure with Hashem. Tamim tiyem Hashem lokecha. We, you want to know what the will of Hashem is? We don't have to ask any sorcerer. We don't have to go for, you know, the hijibijee palm readers and card readers or all the other seances and things like that. We stay away from all of that. We stay away from all forms of divination. We don't go to people who are fortune tellers, even though I have a fabulous story, I'll tell you in a few minutes, of a great fortune teller who changed the course of my life because of my grandfather. Next, we talk about the prophets. Hashem will send you prophets who will speak my words, speak the words of Hashem. A false prophet will die, will be put to death. The Jewish people are guided and taught how to discern a false prophet. Then we learn about the city of refuge. We are commanded as previously commanded in the Torah. If you may remember, several weeks ago, we talked about the designation of cities of refuge. The cities, there are three cities of refuge that are to be established in Israel and three in the Transjordan. This is repeated again in our Parsha. An inadvertent killer should run for safety from the victim's family. However, an intentional killer is handed over to the blood avenger to be put to death. The Torah commands us to have no pity for the murderer. Next, the Torah teaches us about honesty. B'nai Yisrael are cautioned not to adjust the boundaries of their inherited property in the land. You're going to go into the land of Israel, and Joshua and Kalev and all of the leaders are going to divide up. Okay, your family goes here, your family goes there, and they give you um, uh, markers for your property. You're not allowed to go at night and adjust it three more feet so you can fit your pool in there and so on and so forth. The land that was designated is the land that is yours and only that land is yours and not to adjust it um, the Torah warns us about this. Conspiring witnesses. If two false witnesses come forward to frame a third party and they are proven liars in court, they are punished with the same way they conspired to inflict pain on the innocent party. Again, the Torah says, we have no pity on them. So if two witnesses come, they come forward to the court, and they say, oh, we saw Joe Schmo borrow $300, and he never paid it back. He says, me? I, I never borrowed the money. And they're like, we saw it. Two more witnesses come to Besden, to the court, and they say, these two witnesses are liars. Because the same day that they say, that they saw Joe borrow money, the $300, they were with us in Hawaii. Oh, how inconvenient. And therefore, 
they are false witnesses. So the Bezdin would do an investigation. And if indeed it is correct that those two conspiring witnesses were are false and lying, they're going to now be punished by paying this innocent third party the $300. Because they tried to make him lose 300 now they have to pay him 300 And there are many, there's an entire tractate in the Talmud that talks about these types of witnesses, these false conspiring witnesses. And then finally, the portion concludes with two more things. Number one is the rules of war. The Torah says, be brave. Don't worry about your attacking enemies outnumbering you. You're going to look and you're like, wow, there's a massive army coming to fight against us. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to overcome them. How are we going to do it? You know what? Hashem is with you. And the Torah tells us here, have no fear. A special anointed Kohen would inspire the troops to have no fear and only place their trust in Hashem. This is an anointed Kohen, just like the high priest. This was a, you give them a pep talk. He says, guys, you've got this. You know why? Not because you have the best military gear, not because you have the best training. We'll see in a minute who were these troops. These troops weren't the most muscular uh, young men. These were the people who were God-fearing, Bible-studying individuals. These were the rabbis. Those were the warriors. Don't be afraid. Those not suited for combat, anyone who just built a house or planted a vineyard or has not yet been married or anyone who is fearful or faint-hearted should remain behind. Don't go to war. We need brave people. And then before you fight a war, there's an overture of peace. Before waging war, we are commanded to offer the opportunity for peace. If this gesture is turned down, Hashem will make you victorious as you kill the males of your enemy and spear their women, children, and animals. You may plunder their booty. However, the nations occupying the land should be eradicated. So the, the nations, the Chiti, the Amori, the Prizi, the Yivuzi, the Girgashi, all of those nations who are in the land of Israel, when you go and occupy the land, don't spare anybody. Don't touch their booty. Burn everything. Why? Don't spare anyone. So that no one teaches you their abominable and evil ways, the Torah says. Don't allow them. Don't allow them to teach you their evil ways. You're going to save one woman one child, they may teach you the ways of idolatry. There's nothing that Hashem dislikes more than idolatry. Upon overtaking the city, it is forbidden to destroy or cut down a fruit tree. This is a law that applies today as well. We don't cut down fruit trees. Unsolved death, this is how the, this portion ends. The Egla Arufa. If a corpse is found between two cities, the elders of the nearest city must take a heifer and slaughter it by the stream. They then wash their hands over it and declare, quote, Our hands have not spilled this blood and our eyes did not see. This would serve as an atonement for the entire nation. 
And that's how this week's Parsha ends. And now we begin our important lessons for this week's Parsha. Number one, you remember last week we discussed that we should do the will of Hashem. Do what's proper, do what's right, what's good in the eyes of Hashem. So I think that we need to elaborate on that a little bit more because many times in this week's parasha we see the same theme where Hashem says, do what's right. We see several times it says, don't have pity. So who decides what's right and who decides what's just? Well, I think that certain things, like I was walking yesterday, I was downtown in a particular city, I'm not going to mention names, but there were people there trying to advocate for abortions. They were trying to get me to sign some. I was like, I don't have time, sorry. But they were trying to advocate for abortions. Now, there are many different ways you can look at it. You can look at it as this is righteous because the mother is, for whatever reason, you can give whatever reason for it. You can look at it from the perspective of the child, the unborn baby. There are always different ways to look at it, and we always have to be open-minded that there are other perspectives. It doesn't mean, just because they have a logic, doesn't mean it's the correct logic on both sides. So who decides? So look at the verse. The verse says, do what is good and right in the eyes of Hashem. Hashem decides what's good and right. Hashem decides what is just. And therefore, what is in the Torah, what is in the Halacha, what is guided to us by the word of Hashem, is what is righteous, is what is good. So we need to remember this. What happens if my perspective is different than the perspective of the Almighty? Well, I think that this is the right thing to do. Well, Hashem doesn't think that that's the right thing to do. Who wins? Who wins that battle? This is the question that each and every one of us want to, want to need to answer. We need to answer what happens in my life if I realize that something that I want to do, this is my favorite thing to eat, this is my favorite thing to do. And Hashem says, don't eat that. Or Hashem says, don't do that. Who wins? Is it my perspective that decides? My prejudice my nuanced, my emotional perspective, is that what decides what's good and right? Or is the way of Hashem, what Hashem guides us in the Torah, the proper way to, to live our lives? This is probably the most important lesson we will learn in all of the Parsha Review classes. Vasisa sayoshor v'atov Hashem In the eyes of Hashem. Hashem doesn't have any emotions involved in the matter, in any of these issues. Hashem, creator of heaven and earth, is MS. MS means truth. Truth doesn't have maneuvers. Well, you can adjust it, you can change it, you can play with it. No, 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 there's no such thing. Truth is truth. And we have to understand that following the way of Hashem, the absolute truth, is the only thing we can be certain is untainted, is unadulterated, 
it's pure. And if you're ever concerned, you're ever, well, I don't know what to do. Talk to Hashem. Say, Hashem, you're my anchor. You're the truth. Guide me. I want to follow your ways. Okay, then we see that when we talk about laws, we talk about justice. It's justice for all. Everyone has the same set of rules. There's no different tiers in Jewish law. The king too, Moshe too, the rabbis, the prophets, the simple people. Everyone has the same laws. Everyone needs to put on the same pier of tefillin. There's no such thing in Judaism where like, oh, you don't need to do anything because someone died for your sins or someone is doing the job for you. Or, you know, if you just ask the rabbi, he'll uh, fulfill the mitzvah for you. No, no, no. Everybody on their homes needs to have a mezuzah on their doors. Everybody needs to light their Shabbos candles. Everybody, there's no exceptions to the rule. Oh, my rabbi's putting on tefillin for me today. No, that doesn't work. You have your own relationship with God. And there's nobody who can say, well, it's not for me. It is for you. You may not be at the right at that place right now. Fine. But don't make it that it doesn't exist for you. We talked many times about taking small steps. That's fine. Could be a person grows up without any type of religious connection and they're not at the place where they're able to accept the entire Shabbos and observe all 25 hours of Shabbos. Can you do two hours? Four hours, eight hours. I always say the best thing for someone who's a beginner, start with Friday night. Light the Shabbos candles, turn off the phone, the computer, the television, turn off all of it. Because by the time you wake up in the morning, you have your festive meal at night, you're enjoying your family. It's like Thanksgiving every week. You have your children over, you have your friends over, you have a great meal, you drink fine wine, everything is great. It's delicious. You go to sleep, you wake up, Shabbos morning, Saturday morning, and you already kept half of Shabbos. All right, so you have things. So then you can grow from there. You can take another hour. You can take another hour. Eventually, when you're strong, and it's, it's, it's a slow and steady growth. We have to remember that the rules apply equally. There's no special privilege. You don't find it even once that Moshe was obligated. Oh, he's, he's the big kahuna, so like he doesn't have to uh, do. No, 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 there's no such thing. Everybody is obligated to the same set of laws. The king might have more distractions. He's restricted even more to make sure he doesn't break those rules. He had a Torah that he had to carry with him the entire time. Don't become hum- don't become arrogant. Stay humble. Remember, know your place. You're no different than anybody else. You're a king. That's great. You have certain privileges. But that doesn't change the laws that you're obligated to. What is the singular job of a judge? To carry out the will of Hashem. So, you know, there's a question that's asked, well, what happens if two witnesses, we know in this week's Parsha and several times previously, we learned that you can only accept the witness, two witnesses in court to put someone to death or to, you know, you need to have two witnesses. Okay. What happens if the two witnesses don't match up? Their testimony doesn't match up. It doesn't make them 
you know, I don't remember the details. Okay, so you can't count them now. You can't, yeah, it has to be witnesses who remember all the details and they're, they're alike. What happens if they're not alike? So now you can't accept those witnesses. And now the person just walks scot-free. So the very important principle we need to know about this. The person doesn't walk scot-free. Hashem is the king of the universe. Hashem is the judge of judges. And Hashem will decide to punish this person appropriately. Hashem sometimes, because of a lack of proper witnesses, is just taking away the opportunity for mankind to give out the laws and to give out the judgment. It's not that the person walks away, oh, he was able to win in court and therefore look at him, right? No, 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 be careful. Remember that Hashem is the king of all kings. Hashem knows exactly what happened. He knows exactly the agreement. And don't worry about it. Because he will mete out punishment exactly how he sees it. The fact that Hashem allows for human beings to be judges and to give out punishments is only if they have the exact ingredients, which has to be perfect, perfect witnesses. If those witnesses are not there, it's not that the person is innocent. It's that the human beings don't have the power from the Almighty to mete out judgment. And it's very important for us to realize this. You have a bad business deal and someone steals money from you. I had this experience. They steal money from you. You can take them to court and you can fight all day, all night. Or you can say, you know what, Hashem, I'm not going to fight because you don't want me to fight. I'm not going to benefit anything anyway. What happens, uh, you know, inheritance battles in families? Families get to- families get torn apart. And what happens at the end? Nobody benefits from anything. The lawyers get all the money. And the children are left with nothing. This is a fatal error that people make in thinking that we have the power for everything. Hashem has the power. You know what? And if he wants you to get that million dollars, he can get it to you from a lottery ticket. He can get it to you from a tax return. He can get, I don't know, he can get it to you a million and a half ways, a billion ways. So there's no limit to how Hashem can get. If he wants you to get it, if he doesn't want you to get it, you're not going to get it anyway. Why fight? Act in the way that Hashem wants you to act. Okay. We have to understand that society cannot function without laws. This week's parsha tells us, Shoftim Vishotrim, you have to have judges, you have to have laws, you have to have a way to act on those laws, like a police force. When we have a police in our cities, we're fulfilling a biblical commandment so that there isn't chaos. There's a different problem going on in our generation where you have prosecutors who aren't prosecuting cases. So people are ransacking businesses, people are looting, people are uh, stealing. They're going to high-end stores in malls and all of these places. And you see it on video, you see it online. Lawlessness has no place. Because once you have lawlessness, then people take the laws into their own hands. People will steal, 
people will murder, people will do things, and there's no repercussion. We have to be very, very careful about just letting the, oh, it's too small of a, of a case. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, uh, it's, I think in San Francisco, they have now a law that less than $950 is not considered theft. $950? One penny is considered theft. One penny. So you're saying it's not worth it for you to, that doesn't mean it's not theft. It is theft. And it needs to be punished. All right. Next thing we have to remember is that bribery works. A hundred percent of the time. And that's what the Torah says. It doesn't say, well, it, there's a possibility that if you bribe them that it will harm them. No, no, no. That's not what it says. It's guaranteed. Bribery works a hundred percent of the time. Now, in, there's a lot we need to talk about when we talk about money, how money blinds people, how money has a power to change people and to confuse people. People think they're powerful when they have money. People, everyone wants to be friends with the wealthy guy, with the rich guy. Uh, you know, I want to invite him to my party. I'll, you know, be friends with him. It's very dangerous. We have to be very, very careful. Money is blinding. And the Torah warns us of this. The Torah warns us we need to be very, very cautious about the power of money. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpackage here. We're going to have to dedicate another whole class to this. But I think it's important for us to just know that any type of favoritism that we show to another person should not be based on anything other than righteousness. The Torah tells us that a judge cannot show favor. Oh, he's your friend. I know many lawyers do this. They take out judges for lunch, and they, they're good friends, and then they're presiding over cases for, for these attorneys, and they're like, of course I got this case. This is my friend. I, I went out for lunch yesterday. Do you think he's not going to give me show favor, curry favor for me? Right? That's a problem. It's a big, big problem. The Torah says not to do that. So we need to be very careful about honesty and deception in law. So it's very interesting that in our, our Parsha, it says that you can judge a case based on two or three witnesses. Now, if you have two, certainly three. What does it need to mean? Why does it, why, why does it, why do we need this redundancy? Why does that we know, we declare this every week in our Parsha, Parsha podcast, there's not an extra word, not an extra letter in the Torah. Why would the Torah take an extra three or four words? O Alpi Shlosha Aden. Two or three witnesses. What do you need to add that for? Two, obviously three. So is a very important halachic reason for it. Very, very important. So let's say two people come to court and they say, Joe owes Shmo $100. So they verify those witnesses. And if the witnesses or everything is checked out, everything proves to be truthful, then what happens? He has to pay $100. What happens if three witnesses come? Two of them check out perfectly. But the third one doesn't. The third one has some confusing details. You throw out the entire batch. 
That means just because you had two good witnesses doesn't mean that the third one can't ruin it for you. That means all three, if you have three or ten witnesses who come forward, all ten need to be perfect, like the two. And if all ten are not, if one, if nine out of ten are perfect witnesses, but the tenth one has some confusing details and invalidated, the whole case is invalidated, or all of those witnesses are invalidated. Okay, it's a very important teaching in the Torah. Now, why is this important, and why does it say it in this week's parasha? Because there's another very important time in this week's parasha that we talk about accuracy, and that is regarding prophets. A prophet, the Torah tells us, how do you identify a true prophet? That every word he says is from Hashem and comes out to fruition exactly as he said. The Rambam tells us, that if a prophet tells you that on Monday, the first of the month, there's going to be a lightning bolt that comes from heaven and it's going to strike down exactly in the middle of this table and you're going to have a unicorn appear. Okay? Very descriptive details. Everything is, okay? What happens on the first day of the month? At 12 o'clock in the afternoon, exactly when he said it will happen, a lightning bolt indeed comes And right in the middle of the table, there's a donkey. One small detail. It's one small detail that's off. Guess what? The whole prophecy is out the window, and that person's a false prophet. For someone to be a true prophet of Hashem, every single detail needs to be truthful. That's the way you verify. Eh, Most of the information was correct. That doesn't count. Every single detail needs to be accurate. It's the same thing with witnesses. Every single detail needs to be accurate. All right. So we mentioned this previously, uh, that there's no exceptions to the laws of the Torah. Nobody is given a pass and like, oh, it's not applicable to you. No, it's applicable to everyone. But a very learned scholar, we learned in this week's parasha, who refuses to accept the halachic decisions of the Sanhedrin is put to death. Meaning, if someone doesn't accept the rulings of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin who makes laws, institutes laws, by the way, only seven laws were ever added to the Torah, like washing our hands. Our sages decreed that. That's a decree from our sages. It's not written in the Torah. You're not obligated to wash your hands every morning when you wake up and before you eat bread. That's something that was instituted by the rabbis, one of the seven laws that the rabbis instituted. But you know what? The rabbis don't make up those laws out of thin air. It's all based on the teachings of the Torah. For example, like how the Kohen would wash his hands prior to the service in the temple. Our sages compare our eating as a service in the temple, and therefore we should also wash our hands before eating. It's not just taken out of thin air. So there are, we can go in, we can dedicate a class to the, the added laws, but there's very few and they had to be unanimously accepted. We'll talk about mina customs. That's a totally different concept, a totally different idea. But we, what we need to understand that someone who doesn't accept the rulings of the Sanhedrin 
is no different than someone who doesn't accept the words of the Torah. Even if he's a great scholar, oh, such a righteous scholar, he knows the entire Torah. If he doesn't accept the teachings and the rulings of the Sanhedrin, it's no different than him saying, I'm not accepting the words of the Torah. And then the unintentional killer remains in the city of refuge till when? Till the Kohen Gadol dies, till the high priest dies. So what happens? What happens? All of the unintentional killers are sitting in the city of refuge. They're waiting for their freedom. They're in like a prison. And they're waiting. What sets them free? The Kohen Gadol dies and then they're set free. Okay, so what are they going to do? They're going to pray all day. Hashem, please make the Kohen Gadol die. Hashem, please make the Kohen Gadol, make the high priest die so that we can be set free. So what would the mother of the Kohen Gadol do? She would come there every day and she would knit them clothes and she would feed them good food. And like this, they would be so happy that they're getting such good service from the mother of the Kohen Gadol. They don't want that service to stop. So I remember when President George W. Bush left the White House after his eight-year tenure as president. So they asked him, what's the one thing you miss? He says, I miss people getting me my coffee every morning. And you get that service. Imagine these people are sitting in prison and getting the service from the mother of the Kohen Gadol. They don't want that to stop. <laughs> it's so great. But what is she concerned about? Our sages ask, what is she concerned about? That these prisoners, these murderers, are praying to Hashem that the Kohen Gadol shall die? That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that these criminals are going to pray to Hashem? These are the lowest of the low. What are you concerned about? The answer is, our sages tell us, every prayer is loved by Hashem. There's no one who should, this is a word of encouragement for us, you know, the mother of the Kohen Gadol was concerned that these criminals are praying. Imagine, we should never, ever feel, me? Hashem doesn't want to hear my prayers. Yes, he does. We're concerned that the criminals' prayers are going to be answered. And they are. They're very powerful. Because every prayer is powerful. I just want to leave off with one quick story. I told you earlier that I'm going to share with you a story about fortune tellers. My grandfather had an agreement with his parents. His parents were not religious people. My grandfather was a very, very big rabbi. He became a very, very big rabbi. a self-made man. His parents did not want him to go to yeshiva. But they made a deal. He went to learn in a yeshiva in Switzerland. And when he comes back after his time in the yeshiva, he's going to university. That's it. Enough of this nonsense. You're going to learn yeshiva. So... Before he was done, the last couple of weeks he was in yeshiva, a rabbi from the Mir yeshiva, the great Mir yeshiva in Poland, someone who was a student in the Mir, came to visit in that yeshiva for Shabbos, a scholar in residence, and he gave a Musser lecture. My grandfather's eyes lit up. This is the first time he heard a Musser discourse, and he was completely enamored by this lecture. And he speaks to this individual, asking him more questions and talking to him more and more. And this individual says to my grandfather, he says, you know, you need to go learn in the Mir Yeshiva by Rabbi Rucham, the great Musser master, Rabbi Rucham Lubavitz. My grandfather's like, he has an agreement. He's about to head home in a few weeks to Germany to go to university. What is he going to do? He writes his parents a letter. Meanwhile, his parents are on a cruise. 
And on the cruise, there's entertainment. It's not a new thing. There's a cruise back then too. And on that cruise ship, one of the entertainments were was a um, fortune teller. The fortune teller speaks to my great-grandparents, my grandfather's parents, and says, when you arrive at your destination, you're going to receive a very odd letter from your son. It's going to be a very odd request in the letter. Whatever he wants, whatever he asks for, let him do it. In that letter that they received when they arrived at their destination was my grandfather's request to go learn in the Mir Yeshiva. And they allowed him. My grandfather says that he was born the day he arrived at the Yeshiva of Mir. He was born that day. That's when his spiritual world opened up. That's when his spiritual world was born. My grandfather said to us that when he was in the lunchroom, one of his first days in the yeshiva, the students asked him, so how old are you? He said, I'm 17, 18, however old he was. And they all started laughing. He's like, what's going on? They're like, oh, he's three months old. He's six months old. He's 12 months old. And he's looking at them, they're grown adults. What are you talking about? They counted in that yeshiva that they were born when they arrived at the yeshiva. The halacha says an amazing thing. If your father, your biological father, and your rabbi are both in prison and you have money to redeem only one of them, who do you redeem? Yeah, you need $500 bail. Who do you let out first? Your rabbi or your father? Our sages tell us your rabbi. Why? Because one brings you physically into this world. One brings you spiritually into the world to come for eternity. Which one takes precedence? The one who brings you to your spiritual destiny for all eternity. To understand is an unbelievable value to the Torah that we study. It brings us eternity. It's not just the physical world that we're living in. We're very connected. We know what's going on. I feel it every day. The food I eat, the places I go, the things I do, something much greater than that. And that's our spiritual destiny. And that's with our investment in our Torah study, our investment in our spiritual well-being. We get to great places. My dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos.